0: House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres. Welcome back into the House of Mystery, and I'm Al Warren. Joining me today, we got Mr. John Copanever. How are you doing, John? I'm doing
1: well, Al. How are you?
0: Well, I'm good. Uh, you, I just got back from L.A., and you got back from. Albert. Know, yeah, the big the big lefty crime. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Left post crime, yes, indeed. It was uh, a lot of fun.
0: Yeah, it would have been. It looks like there's. it was a good turnout, lots of people.
1: It was. I think people are so anxious to get back in person and see people and kind of have that feeling of community. And I mean the writers, but the fans as well. Um, so, yeah, the... Uh, the sort of spirit of the conference and the energy was high um, so it was good Yeah,
0: yeah. well people are excited to get back at her and see people live and move around and stuff like that I, I wasn't so excited about being back in LA but <laughs> <laughs> and you know four flights and it, it all comes back to you on the first flight about how much you hate flying
1: yeah, I'll say that um, that flying, I felt like I was being folded into a refrigerator every time I got in a seat. I was like, this is just awful. Um, I can't recommend flying, but <laughs> <No>. <laughs> recommend traveling or getting to your destination. <laughs> yeah,
0: Vancouver to L.A., I was in one of those. There's three seats per side, and I was by the window, and I had two guys sitting beside me that were both 6'5 and probably 300 pounds.
1: Yep. Yeah, my
0: headphones. I lost my headphones, so I couldn't even listen to music. It was terrible.
1: Yeah, I play the game of who am I going to be sit who's going to be sat next to me? I guess the way of putting it. And I um, yeah, I uh, I almost always uh, don't get my wish. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, That's
0: how it goes. Okay. Well, um, let's see. Now we have got an interesting guest here. It's a friend of yours,
1: isn't he? Yes. Great writer, Alex Segura.
0: No, so, oh, well, well, let's welcome to the show. Hello, uh, welcome, Alex. Thank you for being here.
2: Thanks for having me. I'm excited to uh, chat. Well, and thank you, John, for the invite. Of course.
0: So, so before we put you start grilling you, um, <laughs> <laughs> you've got quite an interesting history. So you you're really into the comic book world, and, and I I I, I, re- I didn't know how to describe you as a writer. Uh, how do you describe yourself as a writer? Like, what kind of writer are you?
2: Uh, I just say I write comics and novels. I write mystery novels. I write science fiction novels. I write all kinds of comics. I've written podcasts. I, you know, I guess the technical term is like multi-platform. I do a lot of different things, but mainly I write novels and comics.
0: How do those two connect in your mind?
2: Um, you know, they serve each other in kind of subtle ways. You know, uh, when you're writing a novel – you're the absolute decider on everything. At some point, your agent's going to look at it. Eventually, an editor's going to look at it. But at that point, you have a novel. You have a full thing, and it's, it's a lot harder to kind of move the iceberg. Uh, with a comic book, it's much more collaborative. Um, I think the closest thing to it is playing in a band where each of you have an instrument and you're jamming and it, you come up with something greater than the individual parts. You know, the writer of a comic book is almost like the screenwriter of a movie. You're, you're, you're talking about actions and dialogue, and then the artist is the director who chooses the camera angles, the style, the, the atmosphere. Uh, and that's a lot to give away. I mean, when you're writing a novel, that, that all rests on our shoulders as novelists. We set the tone, the pacing, all those things. And um, you rely on the reader to come up with the visual component. With comics, it's all there. So you almost have to pull back on the literal words on the page because you've got this great resource in the artist. So... Um, I like it. I like both for different reasons. Sometimes I want to be in complete control and I have a very distinct vision, like with with Secret Identity. And and even that has its collaborative aspects. But with a comic, you you want to kind of jam with somebody else and see see what you can come up with together. And and I've always been a collaborative writer. Um, Maybe it's partially because I have a journalism background, so I'm used to, like, people fiddling with my words and the ego or – is not really there as much? I'm, I'm happy to go back and forth with people. I've written short stories in tandem with other writers. So I I guess it's just, I'm flexible that way. I'm not saying I'm a unicorn or anything. There's a lot of writers like that, but, um, Hmm. those are the big differences. And I, I think they help each other because when I'm writing prose, I'm thinking visually and that helps me pull back from description. You know, I describe things enough. So you as a reader can create your movie in your mind, um, but I don't over-describe for the sake of just having those details on paper. Uh, and with with comics, um, I try my best to make the words I do have count, so they feel evocative and complement the art, as opposed to just kind of repeating what the art says. You know, sometimes when novelists come in to write their first comics they tend to overwrite because they're not used to having that resource or having that um, visual. So they, you know, they'll say, you know, Tom walked through the door. Well, you don't have to say that because you can literally draw Tom walking through the door. So then what do you say? And that, that's a whole different kind of skill set. but um,
0: how do you give that yeah. up as a writer? But like, if you're a fiction writer, how do you give up that, um, um, I guess, control to other people?
2: It's hard, I guess I think, you know, as novelists, you're used to having absolute control. But with, with comics, you have to go in understanding that you're not in control. And that's almost liberating because you do your part and you pass the baton. Like I literally all write the script or the plot. And the, the plot is just a less detailed version where you're not telling the artist what to draw panel by panel. You're just giving them a general page by page sense of what to do. And that's part of the fun. You kind of let go and see what they come up with. And it's always different from what you expected or what you visualize. And if it's great, it improves upon what you visualize. It makes it something better that you didn't expect. You know, there's sometimes there's instances where the artist, you need to nudge them in a certain direction or you have to have some conversations, but nine times out of 10, it's better than you'd envision. And that's the fun of comics that you're, you're kind of creating this thing collaboratively and it's becoming something wholly new that, you couldn't have done on your own.
0: Well, let's talk about that one time out of 10. Have you ever (laughs) worked with someone that you just thought was just getting it wrong from what you thought it should be? And who was it?
2: (laughs) (laughs) No, I mean, it's never been a situation where I'm like, oh, this is bad. I think it's, if anything... My rule of thumb is if I'm working for, with an artist for the first time is I go full script or at least ask them and say, do you want me to do full script? And well, all that means is like it's written like a screenplay mm-hmm. and you say, page one, five panel page, we're inside the apartment and John and Alan are having a, a heated conversation. Panel one, John raising his arms, screaming, you know, you just get into a level of a minute detail so, you know, the artist is going to hit the things that you have to have in the story. So, so, I've never really gotten into a situation where the artist just totally bombed and I just had to like really kind of recalibrate what I was doing. But, you know, sometimes you have to have more conversations with an artist than you other times. And when you work with someone a few times, you kind of create a rhythm together. So, there are artists that I've worked with a number of times that I don't have to explain everything to that level of detail. I can say, okay, page one is going to be the links jumping across a few rooftops and then she throws a star and catches the thug and he falls down and you close the page with a close-up on the links looking surprised. And, and you can have that kind of shorthand because you know the artist is going to deliver and pick up on the things you want them to deliver on.
0: So basically you're not going to tell me who you didn't like. With.
2: <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, I don't do that.
1: Okay, Alex, I'm really curious just because, you know, moving between, um, two different forms and but they're both being in narrative forms, do you, uh, does it ever help or well, is one ever a help or inform the other or uh, maybe get in the way at times, like you're trying to shift your mind into novel writing mode and you've been, you know, thinking in, in comics mode, like is that, what's the relationship there? I'm curious.
2: Yeah, that's a great question. Um... I like comics because they're short bursts in terms of the time that I have to put in to create an issue or a script or a plot. And obviously we all know novels are this immersive, all-consuming thing. Like um, when I'm working on a novel, that's just what I think about all the time. You know, I go to bed thinking about the novel. I wake up thinking about the novel. I obviously have to do things like feed my children and survive <laughs> and go to work. But, you know, it becomes this all-consuming thing in my mind. And, I, you know, I create like thousands of song playlist like just so I'm thinking about the book whereas with comics I do think about them but it's much more it's like putting a puzzle together it's like I have 20 pages only so many things can happen on a page I can only have so many panels on a page I can only have one action per panel I can only have so many words per balloon on a panel you know it becomes it's all I don't want to say it's algorithmic but it's Mm it's something much more mathematical to putting a comic together like the pacing of it at least if you're doing like an action or crime or superhero story whereas with a novel like the the blank page is this huge stressor and it's also amazing you know it's just it could be anything the potential is limitless so um yeah i would say novels just dominate and that's my alpha project like that's what i'm really like thinking about 24 7 and comics are important to me as well, but I can kind of pop in and pop out and it's not nearly as, um, paralyzing, I guess, right. <laughs> you know, really like my brain. The,
0: the comic book world's really come a long way over the years. Uh, do, do you like the way comics are nowadays?
2: Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think comics, I think, comics are now considered a medium, which is what it's always been. It's a way to tell stories. And I think a lot of times people just assume they are a genre, like they're superhero comics when that's actually not true. There's memoir comics, there's crime comics, there's sci-fi comics. And and I think people are finally coming around to, and I hate the term literary, but people are understanding comics in a literary way. They're seeing it as just another tool for authors and artists to create stories. Um, And I think – You're seeing creators really come to the medium and do amazing things, um, and they have more options. You know, you don't have to do – you don't have to do comics only for Marvel or DC or these kind of established places. You can do them on the web. You can do them – you know, you can print your own comics. You can create, you know, your own stories in your own way, and, you know, the limitations have been removed. And so there's not as many creative shackles, and I think that's really exciting.
1: You know, uh, one thing that as a t- this is a, uh, speaking with my teacher hat, but I see you know the use of graphic novels and comics in the English classroom um, on the rise uh, over the past ten years. Uh, and I currently teach students with dyslexia and related mm-hmm. learning differences, and they it's just like amazing what I've been able to accomplish because of um, you know well crafted. Uh, graphic novels. Uh, and so, I mean, it's just it's, it's sort of in, in terms of education, it's kind of found this interesting place. Uh,
2: That's great to hear. Yeah, it really has. I think, you know, I learned a lot. I, I was a reader that started with comics as a young child. but You know, that pairing of visual with words was such a great doorway into loving to read. And, you know, when, when somebody asked me, like, what, you know, should kids start reading with comics? I'm like, whatever gets them reading mm-hmm. is good to me, you know, whatever gets your brain working and gets you into the habit of reading and makes you love reading. That's, that's the way to go. Uh, And I think there's, that's a very unique way of telling stories. Like you have the visuals there, you have the words there. It's, it's such a a fun doorway.
1: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Do you
0: like the way comics have been transitioned into like uh, TV shows and movies and series and things like, do you think they, they do a good job turning them into something different?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think it varies. I mean, there's sometimes there's a great adaptation that um, it departs from the source material but is still amazing. Um, then there's shows that adhere to the source material and, and are also amazing. I think it's um, – I try not to think of it in these all-encompassing terms like are adaptations good or bad. I think overall it's great to have more more awareness of the stories because anytime you see a show like WandaVision or um, – or Ant-Man, not Ant-Man, not but or Peacemaker, it gets people interested in the source material, and it gets people kind of coming to comics, which is always good.
0: So now your book, Secret Identity, let's, let's talk about that. Um, mm-hmm. What's the basic premise of this book?
2: Yeah, Secret Identity is set in 1975 New York, and it tells the story of Carmen Valdez, who's a queer Cuban-American woman who moves from her hometown of Miami to New York to work in comics, which is her dream. She grows up reading comics. Uh, it's a very strong touchstone between her and her dad. She has a lot of strong memories of going to you know, the pharmacy and picking up comics, and her dad learned how to speak English by reading comics. Um, so she gets a job as a secretary at this 3rd rate publisher called Triumph Comics, uh, and this is a different kind of industry than – Comics today, you know, comics weren't seen as this literary thing or this pop culture phenomenon. It was very disposable and um, fleeting. You know, there there were no comic shops, there weren't really conventions at the time, so it was a very kind of um, rickety industry. You know, that people didn't know if it was going to survive. And so Carmen is a fan, and she joins Triumph as a secretary, and she's pitching her boss, who's a little bit of a blowhard, this guy Jeffrey Carlisle and she basically makes it clear she wants to write and it comes to a head early on in the book. And he says, look, I have a line of people out the door of friends that I have to keep fed with freelance. And I'm just not going to give you any work. I just, how would it look if I'm like giving my secretary work, it would just be weird. And then, so it's obviously a low grade misogyny that to, in his eyes, he's doing her a favor because he tells her, Hey, I have plans for you. I have great ideas for where your career should go. And, and she says, I don't want that. I want to write. This is why I came. And, I don't see why I can't have this opportunity. And so she she goes back to her apartment. She goes through her old comics as kind of like a nostalgic uh, remedy. She's just feeling down. And a colleague, a younger colleague, this guy Harvey, who's a junior editor at Triumph, appears at her apartment door and says, I've gotten this assignment from Carlisle. He wants me to create the first female superhero for Triumph Comics. I don't know if I can do it by myself. I know you want to write. I know you're a fan. And Harvey is like her smoke break buddy. They talk comics. They, they are, they're not super close, but they're kindred spirits in terms of their passion for the medium. And so Carmen's smart. She realizes this is not an ideal situation. She sees the red flags, but um, she does it. I mean, when your dream is dangled in front of you, what are you going to say? I think that's, that's the, the root of the beginning part of the story. And so they create this character called the Legendary Lynx. They, uh, Carmen is fully prepared. She's got scripts ready, half, you know, half done, but ready enough where Harvey can kind of put his, um, his touch on it as well. And um, Harvey then turns in the scripts, and it becomes a huge hit but then Harvey is murdered and the scripts were turned in without Carmen's name. Um, And so no one knows Carmen has anything to do with these stories. The character becomes a runaway hit for triumph. And she's got to basically take on the role of amateur detective to not only figure out what happened to her friend, but to reclaim this thing that was such a big part of her. I think that's really when I was crafting the story, that was the only thing that I thought could pull Carmen into the role of amateur PI, you know, having something that's so integral to her being this character that she held so close be stolen from her. And that pulls her in. And there's a, you know, in, like in the classic noir style, there's a very inquisitive detective trying to figure out what happened to this man. Um, there's an old flame from Miami that shows up and complicates Carmen's life. And that's, that's really the initial setup.
0: So how do you, how do you experience your characters? So like Carmen, how do you, um, do you visualize them? Do you hear her? How does this work for you?
2: Uh, It's visual, yeah. And one thing I also want to note about Secret Identity is that as you're reading Carmen's adventures and prose, you hop into sequences told in comic book form that are drawn by Sandy Jarrell that show you the legendary Lynx comics. So you kind of see the comic develop as Carmen's story develops, and it's kind of meta-conversation with the prose. Um, But for me, it's always visual. I always think in visual terms of the characters, and um, I create, like, these casting documents where I – you know, drop-in actors that I have in mind for, um, for these characters. And that helps me just visualize the story. And that, that's why I listen to a lot of music, and the music kind of helps me set up, you know, what the different scenes in the book. I can't listen to it while writing, but I do listen to it a lot while thinking about the book. So Carmen showed up to me right around the time I knew my next book was going to be a murder mystery in comics. I, I kind of knew it would be in the 70s. I, I didn't know what the plot would be. And then she appeared... And she was just fully formed for me. And I knew that I had to kind of funnel the story through her. And that was a really magical moment, I thought, for me.
1: Did you do a lot of research for this time period? Because essentially you're writing a kind of historical uh, mystery, right? I mean, it could be classified as such.
2: Um, Yeah, yeah, I did. I did a lot of research about the time, you know, the political, you know, what was happening in New York at the time, you know, just obviously making sure that what happens on a given day in the book, you know, if something of note was happening, just to, you know, echo that. But also just the vibe of New York in 1975. It was a very different place from New York in 2022. It was in financial ruin. You know, Gerald Ford had just told the city to drop dead. Uh, Crime was sky high. And we were, as a country, we were in this post-Watergate malaise, you know, I guess the first feeling of American failure, I guess, if you want to really be uh, broad about it. But also there was a vibrant music scene. So I read a lot of books about the music scene. I read a lot of books about, you know, New York in that time period. One book that particularly stuck out for me was um, Love Goes to a Building on Fire by Will Hermes. And what he did so well was he basically tracked the music scene in New York for in the seventies, but not just like, you know, the punk CBGB stuff, but also Latin music, jazz, the avant-garde, um, you know, the beginnings of hip hop. And in that description, while he's talking about these different musical moments, you obviously get a sense of the city, what was going on politically, socially. Um, and that was really just a huge resource and, uh, and really helpful and yeah, it yeah, it is, it is a historical novel. I think I had to really do – I wasn't alive in 1975, so I wanted to really make sure that what the book reflected was as close to accurate as possible.
0: Yeah, I was alive. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, I, I wonder, the, um, so in a way, New York is almost a character you've written.
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, for me, my, best, my favorite crime novels, the setting is as, not as, but almost as important as the main character.
0: Uh, now, so, Carmen, how do you get into that mind? How do you create a character that's going to play and sound real when it's someone that's not who you are, like this is a completely different type of person living in a different time?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. I think, you know, Carmen and I have a lot of things in common. You know, we're Cuban-American. We're from Miami. We, we both flew to New York to work in comics. We have there's some parallels there, but we're obviously very different. She's a queer woman. I'm a straight man. Um, I think the best thing when I decided this was what I was gonna write, I knew I would need help. And I knew I would need sensitivity readers. I knew I would have to do a lot of reading on my own to just try my best to evoke this character. But I also, you know, I think a lot of people say sensitivity readers and they use that as a checkbox, like, oh I got one, so this is good. Um and at the end of the day, the ultimate judge is the readers. The readers are gonna read it and decide whether you've landed and you've been honest and transparent. Um So for me, it was really taking the notes and I got notes. I mean, uh, you know, I had queer women sensitivity readers. I had women that worked in comics as informational interviews during the time that they worked in comics during the time that gave me um, insight into what it was like to be a woman in comics at the time or just a woman in publishing at the time. Um, And I just tried my best to listen, you know, with the understanding that I'm writing a mystery and it's it's much, it's, that's what, that's what it is. And so I didn't try to tell that Carmen's definitive experience as a queer woman. You know, it's not my place to tell that story, but I think in terms of representation and in terms of bringing some variety to the protagonists of mystery novels, it, it, felt like it was a good thing to do. And I just tried to be thoughtful about it. You know, I did as much reading as I could. I spoke to as many people as I could, and and I I shared the manuscript at various stages. And I I just tried to be mindful that I was writing outside of my experience and and tried to be as transparent as I could be about it.
1: I was uh, on a panel at Left Coast Crime, which I'm not going to remember the exact title of it, but it (laughs) essentially was writing characters who you are, you know, and... Um, and there were uh, every, all of us had written characters um, that were different than us, um, and you know I, I write from a straight female point of view a lot, um, and I think it's it's really interesting because a lot of the audience we got lots of questions like you know well do you are you worried about writing something that you're that you aren't you know is this something that is you know you know always worrying you or keeping you holding you back. Or uh, something you feel like you're going to be called out for, and I don't know when you were clearly you've done a lot of research and sensitivity readers, but um, it was certainly something I had to think a lot about. And it sounds like you've gone through a lot of those uh, the same thoughts. But do you do you ever have a reservation or anything along those lines, or how do you feel about that?
2: Yeah, I think my concern was mainly just doing it well and doing it right doing it right and uh, it's yeah I'm glad we're talking about this because it's one of the things I'm I was like you know I should talk to John about this because we were kind of running parallel paths with our books um at least in terms of writing outside of our experience but yeah I mean the criticism you know your books are always going to be criticized for one way one thing or another but I, I definitely wanted to make as much of an effort as I could to do it as right as possible or as well as possible and so I think a lot of that comes with having people read it and having people give you notes on what you might be missing because I, I can't I, – it's just not my experience, so I can't think of everything. And so that was my main concern, trying to do it justice and trying to do it well, you know, under the umbrella of, of writing a mystery, you know?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Do, do, do you write the same for your characters in comics as you would in a book, mystery book?
2: I mean, I think about them, and I try to flesh them out the same way. I think it's, it's, it's a different – Like I said before, it's more collaborative, so when I'm working on a comic, I usually try to loop in the artist and kind of go back and forth, and and they can create visuals as we go back and forth and designs, and that's really exciting. Uh, When I'm doing a novel, I don't have that resource, so it's really up to me in terms of, like, visual cues and vision boards and things that get me thinking about the character and developing them. For me, it always starts with character. If the character's not compelling and if if I'm just working on a plot, I I get bored, and if I'm bored, the reader's probably going to be bored. (laughs)
0: In this story, here, um, do you have like a subtext or some sort of point of view that you're hoping people get by the end of the book?
2: It's interesting. I think the theme, you know, Carmen, it's about her reclaiming something that's really special to her, this character, and this idea that she created it in secret and she needs to reclaim it. I think. I think it's really about ideas and who owns ideas and who, who controls them and they're often different things. And uh, so it is a little bit of a meta commentary on IP, especially IP at the time. Uh, And it's kind of why I felt the need after finishing this book to write another one set in that world, because I think there's more to be said about it and more to be said about it in the modern day, like the commodification of art um, and what it means to be a fan versus a creator. And what's the line there. And, But it's all wrapped up around, hopefully, a murder mystery that keeps the pages turning. And I hope for people who are comic fans, they read it and get a kick out of it because they see all these little Easter eggs and also have a good time with the mystery. And on the flip side, for mystery readers, I hope there's enough there that you leave the book intrigued about this medium that maybe you haven't spent much time with.
0: You mentioned you listen to a lot of music, and that gets you kind of going with uh, ideas and creative process. What is your process in the sense of... um, are, are, are you the kind of guy that, uh, okay, so there's nobody home between 10 and two today so I can sit down and write and, or do you have to be in a certain mood? Does it, does it just work for you or not?
2: Um, I mean, I try to deceremonialize the process as much as possible because I don't have, I wish I had like <laughs> from 10 to two, that sounds like a, a dream <laughs> scenario. <laughs> um, Usually, I'm writing in spurts. So it's like, okay, I have 20 minutes because my son's playing in his room and my daughter's napping, and I can kind of crank really fast, or I have a few minutes before I have to start work. I can, you know, start outlining this. So it's really about how quickly can I go from realizing I have this pocket of time to tapping away at the keyboard. And so a lot of that I try to eliminate any kind of ceremonial stuff like lighting a candle or putting on (laughs) mood music or, you know, things like that. Like, you know, and and it's not to judge like I know a lot of writers have their method and my method is how quickly can I open the laptop and start, start working. Like my document, my novel documents always open, like thank God for autosave. But yeah, it's always the quickest path to the writing is the one I try to take because I just don't know how long that window of time is going to be.
0: John, do you burn candles? I
2: do. <laughs> first I have to clean the house and <laughs> <Yeah>. well,
1: <that's, laughs> then I have to but, mow the yard and then Yeah. yeah. But that's yeah. true. I'm I, I yeah. a little more precious about it, but um I I I admire like the ability to sort of you know, crack, find that I just grab the time when it's there. Um, it's something I need to be better at, frankly. Um, I, I tend to, it's hard. Yeah, it's hard. It's hard. And I tend to like have to warm up. Um, but maybe if you're just in the habit of doing it, um, then you, you, you get over this sort of idea that you have to warm up to it. But, um,
2: yeah. And I go in also knowing, and you probably do too, you go in knowing that First drafts are going to be bad, yeah. and I'm just vomiting words onto the page, and eventually I would, can come back to it. I'm just laying the foundation and putting up the framework of the house. Eventually I'm going to go in and paint it, move the furniture around, and hang up some paintings. But for now it's really just structural, and I'm an outliner. I don't know, how, if how John, if you outline heavily, but I'm a, I'm a pretty strict outliner. But I try to give myself enough wiggle room that if a character really shines and appears interesting enough that they can move through the outline and change things without – disrupting the process.
1: Yeah, I I used to uh, be uh, not necessarily start off with an outline but then about somewhere between 70 and 100 pages in really (laughs) nail things down.
2: I used to do that too. I thought it was insane. uh, I was insane, I think. I think it's
1: insane. (laughs) I I outlined the two follow-up novels to Savage Kind and it is a joy to sit down and just be able to think, not worry about all the mechanics but just write uh, right. Yeah. All, always, you know, allowing myself to go a direction that might crop up. You know, not being uh, slave to the outline, so to speak.
2: Yeah, it's. I think you, you kind of set up the tent poles and you know generally where the story's going. Because I always have to know how it ends, or who the killer is, or what the big reveal is going to be. I need that. But you know, le- you know, you have these like markers that guide you, but you can veer off and take a detour. You know, there's a character in secret identity that shows up. In the first third, and she was meant as just kind of this like oracle type character, like hinting that there was more, more to know about Harvey. And I, I thought that would be that. And then she just kept showing up. And had I just gone strictly by the outline, she would have never shown up again. Um, but there were these openings, and I thought, well, why not use this character here? And 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 you know, she became this integral part to the final act, which was interesting.
0: Wow. So do do you actually um, hear voices? <laughs> <laughs>
2: Um, I don't, I mean, I don't know if I hear voices. I definitely, I definitely, you know, I read the books out loud as part of the editing process, but I do, I do try to give each character their own unique sound of their way of talking or, and that just comes with the territory. I think I do hear them in my head, but it's never, it doesn't ever feel like. There's a struggle for control. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, I always find it is quite, uh, quite different talking to people that writing fiction. You know, in, in, in the true crime and nonfiction world that I write in, the um, mm-hmm. you don't really get to choose the outcome. You don't really get to choose a lot of the um, aspects of the character. It's it's there. You're just you're just learning about them and trying to portray it. Y- you actually get complete control. There's a certain freedom, I guess.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, definitely you're, you, you can craft the story as you see fit and, uh, and then you can tweak the characters as you see fit. I think one of the challenges with secret identity is that I really wanted it to have that sense of verisimilitude where you're, if you are a comic fan and you see all these name drops and mentions in the book, you could squint and feel like this existed in that time. So that had to do a lot with just factual accuracy, but also making sure the characters didn't seem just like archetypes. Like, you know, Jeffrey Carlisle, who's the, you know, the CEO of this Triumph company could have very easily fallen into being like this J. Jonah Jameson or Stan Lee riff or Doug Detmer. A lot of times people ask, oh, is he supposed to be so-and-so? And, and I didn't want it to be something where they were easily identifiable as real people. Like I wanted them to feel Unique and that a lot of that comes from voice and how they behave and how complicated you make your characters. Like there's no villains in this book, there's a murderer. But I think if you read the book, you want you kind of on some level understand why it even happened too.
0: That's interesting. It's a really interesting concept, totally different than what I do. Um, what's, so your process? Um, so you're saying you, you can you just sort of spurt and do things you outline, so you're, you're organized in a sense. You, you put down on paper, you, you know where it's going to go. Um, but again, does that, does things in your life going on around you, does that affect the mood and how you write?
2: Yeah. I mean, the pandemic was challenging. I think I poured myself further into work and that made me more productive, but I think at a certain point during the pandemic, you also realize like I need to take a break. Um, I, we all respond to stress in different ways. My inclination is usually like, let me just hunker down and work harder. And I had to, like, there was a point where I just had to kind of slow down because, you know, working harder doesn't fix any external things. Um, But in terms of what's going on around me while I'm writing, um, I just try to make the most of the time I have when I'm able to write because, like I said before, I don't know when that Bubbles going to burst, you know, when I'm going to have to run and do something else or, you know, I have a day job, so that takes up a a, a good amount of time and there's only so many hours in the day, though, though, you know, we try to fudge that as much as possible, but, you know, I I try to, I try to maximize my time and and so, you know, if I'm not feeling well, or, you know, stressed out or what have you I, I try to, you know, I love to write so there's also that, you know, I think. At the end of the day, you have to sacrifice some things to get to write, but it's good that the actual writing is so much fun for me most of the time. So it actually is a balm against bad moods and frustrations and things like that. It's, it's a nice release from that. I don't know if I answered your question there.
0: Well, it's, I'm, I'm <laughs> just trying to dig into there and see what, what, yeah, what yeah. How, it, how it goes. Because like, um, some writers will say, well, I can just turn it on like they've got two hours they sit down and write it's done and other writers are no you know there's this anti-mask rally going outside my house <laughs> and yeah <laughs> I think
2: I'm more in the I can just turn it on mentality but it's maybe if you know it's, it's sometimes it's a little harder than it should be
0: so what, you mentioned music a lot so what what does music do for you in your process?
2: Um, you know, music like, you know, the vision board and things like that just helps me visualize in terms of thinking of the book cinematically, you know, certain songs will tee me up to think of certain scenes in the book, and I start to move the songs around, and then I have kind of a narrative, a musical narrative, which this sounds crazy, but it works for me, I I basically create a soundtrack for the novel, and it's not necessarily songs that are mentioned in the novel at the right, at the time, like, I, I mention a lot of music in my books, they very rarely correlate to the music in the soundtrack that I'm building as I write. Um, and so really it's just to kind of get my brain working and thinking of, of the book and thinking of the characters and thinking of them interacting. Um, and it's not like dialogue or, you know, keen, you know, you know, it's, I, I'm not watching a movie in my mind, but I'm seeing kind of vignettes of the book. And that helps me when I come back to the, the document, uh, fleshing those out and adding details or things like that, that I kind of visualize while listening to music.
0: Do you ever go back and look at some of your writing and want to do it differently? Change it?
2: Yeah. I mean, that's why I tend to avoid like <laughs> reading my old <laughs> books. I mean, I, I'm proud of them, you know, but here's an example, like Silent City, my first novel finally came out on audiobook recently. And so I was listening to it and, and it was cool to listen to, but I think as writers, we, we just want to move on to them. I'm, I'm of the mind that let's go on to the next thing and um, be proud of what you did before. But, you know, I, I don't, I'm not big on just being retro about it. Yeah.
1: yeah. I think that, that doesn't really, it doesn't really achieve, a, it doesn't really serve a purpose. Like hopefully we're always growing as writers, you know, so it'd be nice to think that the, the book, you know, the next book is going
2: to be better than the last. Um, yeah. My new book's always my best one.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: well, there's, there's always that self-consciousness, right? Too. Plus, because you learn as you go. And then, then you look back at something you did a few years ago. You're like, Oh, Well, but you'll never, ever end that, you know, you're always going to be able to do So that'll, that's kind of a bad process. I think kind of.
2: It's also not, there's nothing you can do. I mean, I don't want to go back and like George Lucas, my earlier novels and like re rework them and and re edit them like that to me seems like a flawed initiative. You know, it's what, there's no win there. The books are what they are. And they're kind of like time capsules of that moment in your career. And it's, it's kind of neat to look at them that way, but Yeah. I don't really look at them that at all. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It's better that way.
0: How, how's your, how do you, how do you like to interact with uh, readers or with fans and stuff like that? Are you big on social media or big on reviews website? Like what, what do you got going on?
2: Uh, Yeah, I have a website. I have a pretty active Twitter account. Um, I'm kind of weaning myself slowly off Facebook. Just, you know, I, I think social media as a whole can sometimes be a little overwhelming, but I think Twitter's a lot of fun in terms of reviews. Um, I forget who gave me this piece of advice, but it's really valuable is it was, um, you know, spend as much time on the good reviews as you do on the bad reviews, which is, you know, whenever I get it or whenever authors get a good review, you're on to the next one. You're like, what's the next one? You know, give me another one. Give me another hit of this like <laughs> rush. And when you get a bad review, you dwell over it. You kind of read it over and over again and kind of wonder what happened. And so I try to strike a balance and, you know, Everyone's got their opinion. Uh, I don't engage with reviews, good or bad, uh, especially on places like Goodreads. And, um, you know, Goodreads is, is meant for readers. It's not necessarily a place for authors. I think authors, you can have pages there and interact to some degree. But, I mean, everyone's entitled to their opinion, and I, I try to just let those things breathe. Um, and I engage with readers on social. And, uh, if, you know, if they tag me in a review, I'll thank them for reading. And uh, I'm always appreciative of readers because I'm still in that mindset, even, like, seven novels in – that someone spent money or time to read my book, and that's really flattering. Even if they didn't like it, I mean, you spent time. I appreciate that, and I try to kind of keep that vibe. And I
0: just think thank people are
2: reading.
0: Sean, you write. it. Yeah. John lights a candle if someone gives him a. <laughs> 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 I, I hunt them down and kill them. I, <laughs> I use them in my next book.
2: Yeah, I mean that is a true crime. Yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, you know, I I, I just wonder. Um, so. What 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 is your process when you when you get blocked or do you get blocked? I hear you know some of the authors we've had on say well they don't believe it. I've had authors say there's no such thing. Uh, it's just laziness, and, and others or swear by it and they get totally blocked. Do, do you have that problem?
2: Um, I wouldn't say I, you know, you know, for a second there, I thought you meant on social media. I was like, well, I'm sure. I'm <laughs> <laughs> no, that. But uh, you know, I hope I hope I didn't. Um, in terms of writer's block, I mean, I just have to work through it. I just I, I just have to find a way to work through it. And usually my method, it never feels like, oh, man, I'm blocked. I can't write. It's usually just the, the words aren't flowing as easily as they should be, or I'm just feeling not as, as prof- efficient at it. And What I do then is I just step away and do something completely unrelated, whether it's, like, take a shower, do the dishes, take a walk. And that's usually when I kind of pop on my playlist and start thinking about the book. And if things ever get too stressful, I just crack open something I've read and loved, you know, by an author that I really admire. And that that just gets me excited about writing. And that makes me not competitive but want to, like, add to that chorus, I guess, of writing. Uh, it's kind of John. I'm sure you feel this now, coming out of a conference. Like, just you spend time with other writers, and you get jazzed for what we're doing. Um, oh, yeah,
1: I mean, I think I think it's I think it's why that that interaction is really important. Uh, not just in terms of marketing or just in terms of community, but it also I think gives you um, some inspiration. Uh, to, to and I certainly uh, felt inspired by this last conference. Um, so yeah, I agree.
2: Yeah, I guess. Yeah. And part of it is I don't have really the luxury to just not write for an extended amount of time. Like, you know, there's deadlines, there's a lot of projects being juggled and, you know, you never want the work to come out badly. But I also know if I'm working and writing and revising, it will be good or it will be okay. So I just need to get to that point. And if that means like taking a walk or, you know, sweeping the floor to just get my mind off something for a second. And that helps. That seems to help in the short term.
0: So who are your inspirations besides John and I?
2: <laughs> <laughs> um, hmm. Oh, there's nobody Let but me, us. <laughs> yeah, that's it. It's just you two. Um, I mean, they're writers that really made me want to write. You know, uh, I, I read the classics like Raymond Chandler and Dashiell Hammett and, um, you know, Margaret Millar and Patricia Highsmith. Those are the ones that really like are, you know, like Walter Mosley and Jim Thompson, like the books that I would read. And they were just kind of like written by these like. Legends, but in terms of like people that I've seen and interacted with, um, George Pelicanos's books were the ones that really showed me you could write a, a PI novel very steeped in setting with a screwed up character and make it, you know, make it feel different. Um, you know, writers like Megan Abbott or Laura Lippman, uh, Michael Connolly, um, and then more modern writers like Kelly Garrett and Sean Cosby, um, people I'm lucky enough to call friends, uh, Jennifer Hillier. And, um, you know, that's, that's what I love about the community is that it's ever evolving. You know, you can meet someone you idolized as a writer, and then they start to talk to you as if you're a peer. And that blows my mind. Like I was on a panel with Laura Lippman and she was interviewing me and I was like, is this happening? Like, is this really <laughs> happening? That, like, you know, it's just wild. And, um, and then on the flip side, there are opportunities to mentor writers. And, you know, I try to be as active as I can in that space, whether, it's doing something like pitch wars or being active in crime writers of color or sisters in crime or mystery writers of America. Like um, I want to be as present to other writers as they were to me when I needed like someone to, you know, just give me advice. You know, I remember writers like Brad Meltzer or Dwayne Straczynski or Greg Rucca that are making, you know, making out of people that were willing to give advice for little return, just doing it because it's a nice thing to do. And you're helping someone kind of, at, a, at an earlier point in their career. And I try to do the same as much as I can, because I think, you know, you just pay it forward.
0: What, what do you think you, what's the best piece of advice you'd give someone that is writing, but actually hasn't gone to the publish button yet. So what, what, what do you, what do you tell them to do?
2: Uh, two things. One is finish something. Uh, it sounds simple, it is not simple. I went through a long time out of college where I would start a million things, start a short story, start a novel, start a comic book, and then you get bored, as you will always get bored. Once, you know, once, once the idea becomes work, it gets less exciting, you get bored. Um, but you really can't play until you have something done. And whether it's a short story or a novella or a comic script, you need to finish it, and then you need to go back and rewrite it and make it better and that's the initial hurdle. And, um, only then after you've kind of polished it off, can you really get to the next phase. And I think in terms of that, my advice is, you know, no journey is identical. You know, uh, everyone says, well, you get an agent, then you sell your book and then you have a book and then you sell your second book. And it goes like that. I, I wrote my first novel without an agent and it was published without an agent by this very small press in New York. And then off that I got an agent and then she negotiated my deal with Polis books, which published my first five novels. And so I guess my advice is that it's not linear. There's not, there's no recipe for how to do it. You know, people do it in different ways. People change agents, change publishers, change, you know, just find the thing that works for you and be mindful that, you know, you can look at other people's paths and admire them, but, you know, there's nothing to be gained from just being jealous and seeing like, oh, well they have it and I don't, it's not fair. And, you know, it's just not how it works. Like everyone's coming at this at a different speed. Right.
0: Um, So someone that's never heard of you before, which I find very hard to believe. um, What what (laughs) what one piece of work would you say best represents you or what would you lead them to? They could only pick one work. What would you tell them to read?
2: I think it would be Secret Identity. I think it's a culmination of a lot of things. You know, it's a love letter to comics. It's a love letter to noir, a very kind of specific kind of noir, like a that Patricia Highsmith, atmospheric, flawed character, noir. Uh, it's got comics in it. Uh, it's got connections to my hometown of Miami. It's got a strong protagonist. Uh, it's, it's, it's got pretty much all the things of me in, <laughs> in one book. So,
0: hmm. Well, you know, did it turn out, like when you first have a book in your mind and you're kind of outlining it, beginning and how it ends and kind of the big things going on, did this book – end up like it was your vision at the beginning?
2: I think it became more complex in a good way, more textured, more layered. Uh, I really enjoyed spending time in, with the characters, and it became much more of a character piece than a plot-driven mystery, though the plot is there, and the mystery is there, and there's the payoff and the conclusion and all the, all the things you need for a mystery, but it really became more about Carmen and her quest to get this character back, and that to me felt really resonant. Uh, in a way that I wasn't expecting.
0: Well, so let's give out your website and all the information. So where do you want people to come find you?
2: Sure. My website is alexsegura.com, and you can find me on Twitter at Alex underscore Segura, S-E-G-U-R-A. And I also have a Facebook author page and an Instagram at Alex Segura Jr.
0: Great, we'll have that linked up to our site, of course, so people can do awesome one click and they can find you and stuff. Any, any Tinder or Grindr or anything else to give out? Or, no, no, no.
2: Okay.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, I always give the option. So what's next? <laughs> what's next for you, Alex? What's coming up?
2: Um, yeah, I'm working on a sequel to Secret Identity that's set in the modern day. It's uh, it's going to feature a new protagonist, um, and Carmen will be a character in the sequel. It'll have comic book sequences as well, but this is very much the other side of the coin. Like if, if in 1975 comics, no comics didn't have any idea of what to do with characters and IP, they were fleeting and, and not, you know, not important. This is the opposite, you know, where every shred of IP is, you know, exploited, exploited and profited on. And And what happens in that scenario where you're given the opportunity to write a character you love, but, you find that the, uh, the underlying story of that character is is rooted in something a little more devious or dangerous, and that's that's kind of the crux of the next book.
0: Well, that's interesting. Well, you're, you're an outline guy, so you kind of outline this sort of stuff. How does that work in a sequel?
2: I think the challenge, I, you know, I guess if I didn't hate the term, I'd call it more of a pseudo-sequel. It is a sequel, but it's not the kind of sequel that, you know, if you don't read Secret Identity, you'll be completely lost. I want it to feel like its own thing. And that's the challenge. That's really the challenge to make the sequel feel like it stands alone. And you would benefit from reading the first book in terms of like little nods and little details that you wouldn't get without it. But it can also be its own thing on its own.
0: Yeah. Cause if you bring in some of the same characters, you kind of, you've taken them through a journey in your first book. So like Carmen, how do you get people up to speed on her?
2: I think you just have to kind of be creative with how you relay that you don't want to have like pages and pages of exposition where the new protagonist is just like, well, here's Carmen Valdez who, dah, 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 dah. you know, and that was one of the things with, with the secret identity. I didn't want it to become a Wikipedia collection where it's like, I mention a comic book creator and then I have to drill down and explain the bio. I wanted it to be something where you're just getting the atmosphere. Like on Mad Men, you don't, you don't get every bit of advertising explained to you or, you know, it's, you're just riding along and kind of, absorbing the details and so i i I try to do it that way
0: do do you like a lot of the noir how do i say this Do, do you like a lot of the more modern mystery crime writers today over years ago
2: yeah i mean i think i think we've got such a diverse, such a great, diverse lineup of authors, you know, not in terms of storytelling, in terms of the stories they are telling, their backgrounds. I think it's a great, it is a golden age for us. I mean, you have, you know, the cozy subgenre in particular is becoming so much more diverse than it was even five to six years ago, or you're seeing, you're just seeing so, there's so many different kinds of stories. I feel like readers are so lucky to have so many different voices and I think it's only the beginning and I think we need more of it.
0: Do you like the the current publishing world, like the you know Amazon and Ingram Sparks, the way it's kind of split now? You've got like uh, you know a lot of the um, online sales, and then you have bookstore sales.
2: I mean, I think indie bookstores are the heart of the industry. That's the stuff that's going to stick around. You know, those relationships with the people that are actually going to hand sell your book to a reader. Uh, I think Amazon is is what it is. I mean, it's gonna it's it's the biggest bookseller in the world, uh, but it's kind of through an algorithm. So that's the inherent challenge. Like, how do you how do you connect with readers when you have to go through this this algorithm? And and that's just it just is what it is. But I think the the best thing for a book is word of mouth, and that's going to come from readers talking to each other, from booksellers talking to readers, and and that's organic, and you can't really fake that. So.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's like the drive-thru. Come on, Amazon. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean, if you, if you know what you want, you can get it there. Yeah,
0: it's the easy way. It's like the uh, accessible, like McDonald's or something, right? It's not. Mm-hmm. It's just there. So, well, what an interesting guy. Interesting conversation. So,
2: Oh, thanks. Yeah, this was fun. So it's
0: The book we're talking about, of course, your newest book is called Secret Identity, a novel. So you need to go out and buy this. You know, Alex needs to quit his day job. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so get out there. Okay? I want right everybody now. out there. Again, yes, thank you. Again, thank you very much, Alex Segura. Thank you.
2: Thanks, thanks, Alex. Thanks so much for having me.
0: Tired of wasting time trying to decide what to watch on your streaming service? Go to our website and look for the Martino movie reviews. You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, all show, go to www.houseofmystery.com.
1: Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Yeah. Good night. This is a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.